Welcome, 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 everybody, to the big show. You get the horn show. Tad here with you. Uh, actually, rolling solo tonight. Just going to be me, my normal co-pilot. Uh, Jeff is under the weather right now, so uh, he had to had to sit this week out, uh, both on this show and our sports show. Uh, for those of you who haven't been checking out our sports show, if you're regular listens, listeners to, uh, to this show and podcast, I highly recommend you check out our sports show. We've always kind of talked sports, and we spun that off separately recently as its own, as its own kind of episode. You can find it on our YouTube page, uh, but also you know on podcasts on Spotify, uh, you know Apple Podcasts. If you just search "You Get the Horns uh, Dash Sports," uh, you'll find our uh, our sports show. And um, you know we we always try to bring you a little different angle, talk about some different and you know, unusual things. Maybe you, you haven't heard elsewhere. Uh, last week we had Dr. Jesse Morse, a, uh, a, a sports, uh, medical physician who, you know, who works with professional athletes and was talking about, you know, some of the injuries that we've seen in, in professional sports, particularly in the NFL right now, made some predictions that have now come, come here, you know, a week later to be true on how long some players were going to be out, who might be out for the season, needing surgery, things like that. So, uh, trying to keep you ahead of the curve and ahead of the news as much as we can here on this show. And, uh, you know, the other thing I'll touch on is, you know, we're, we're, we're not immune to the issues happening in the world here. Uh, we know the last few weeks we've been a little, little dark on this show talking about everything that's happening between Israel and Palestine. And of course, Russia and Ukraine and, you know, uh, inflation and governmental problems and all kinds of different things. And, you know, kind of looking internally, we felt like maybe we're <laughs> we've been a little dark. So we're going to try to lighten the mood here and, uh, and you know, make sure we, we're providing you with interesting things to talk about and interesting stories and interesting facts, uh, things that you might want to be able to share with your friends and family. But going to try to do it in a way that's, you know, a little bit lighter when it's appropriate. Um, and so, you know, uh, I'm going to go rapid fire through some stories tonight, but I do think, uh, you know, they, they'll be a little easier, a little lighter, a little, you know, a little nicer than, than maybe what you've heard the last couple of weeks, uh, if you listen to us. So, um, a couple of things I'm going to start with, since I happened to mention Israel, saw the story, thought it was really interesting kind of, uh, technology here. Israel is unveiling a new defense technology called Iron Beam, which was originally not slated to enter service for years. And so many of you may have heard, you know, on the news, obviously with everything going on, that Israeli has a, an extremely advanced defense system, uh, missile defense. And it is pretty much the most advanced missile defense system in the world, and they call it the Iron Dome. And essentially this Iron Dome, obviously there's not a real dome over Israel, but it, they have this incredible ability uh, to shoot down anything. You know, they're constantly monitoring airspace and they have it set up with, you know, missiles literally that can be automatically uh, deployed at a moment's notice to shoot anything down. And of course, they have that ability and it keeps them, you know, relatively safe, but it's also very, very expensive. And so this new technology, Iron Beam, is a breakthrough technology that enables the country to use a laser beam to shoot down hostile projectiles at a fraction of the cost of the Iron Dome. 
So to give you an idea, it literally costs about $3 per shot of the laser rather than hundreds of thousands of dollars shooting missiles. And so the Iron Beam is a directed energy weaponed uh, air defense system that's been designed to destroy short-range rockets, artillery, and mortar bombs. And so it's, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. And they actually have a little video here uh, that I can share with you. And, uh, you know, for those of you watching, uh, on, uh, on YouTube or on any of the other platforms, video platforms, uh, you'll be able to, to, uh, to see this, but for, you know, for those who are not watching and listening on the podcast, I'll kind of explain to you, but this is essentially, you know, black and white footage of this, this mounted laser beam. And, you know, you have like a missile projectile going through the sky and then boom, you know, it, 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 it explodes because it's been shot through with this laser beam and then they have a drone flying and uh you know and and that drone flies through and literally they just like it saws the the wings right off of this this drone so these uh this this laser is really something and you know not only is it uh, impressive in what it does for the defense system for israel but man, at, at what a tremendous cost savings. I mean, it's really incredible to think that they're able to do this for $3 per shot. So, you know, this is definitely uh, the new standard for, for overall, you know, defense. Uh, and it will not be surprising at all if other nations uh, want to license this technology from Israel, uh, you know, find some way to be able to, to, to utilize it for themselves because, you know, as we go on, obviously the world has become smaller and smaller. There's opportunity, unfortunately, for nations to attack all the time. And so, you know, offense is important, but defense obviously is tremendously important as well. And Israel leads the way as it pertains to that with this new defense technology, Iron Beam. Again, it wasn't even going to be rolling out for the next few years, but clearly with everything going on, they decided to speed up the process a bit. So, Hopefully there aren't too many bugs to be worked out, but either way, uh, really fascinating technology. And I think in that part of the world, you're kind of in a position where you need to be able to protect yourself all the time. Uh, and, and so, you know, really that ability to defend is uh, vitally important because you are surrounded. You know, the U.S., we kind of take it for, for granted sometimes, I think, that, you know, we have... Canada to the north and Mexico to the south. So, you know, relatively friendly, uh, you know, ally countries that are around us. And then really nobody to either side as you have the Atlantic uh, Ocean on one side and the Pacific on the other. So anyone who was coming across there, you know, we'd be aware of ahead of time. I mean, obviously it was a little bit different during Pearl Harbor. We, we, you know, we, we didn't know they were coming, but we weren't as advanced then as we are now. And so now, you know, it, it, we don't have those, those, same types of issues. And again, things can still happen from within the country. Things could still happen from neighboring countries, but you know, we just don't have as many neighboring countries and particularly not as many uh, neighboring countries who aren't allies. as what somebody like Israel does. So, you know, who knows if, if this type of thing will ever be something that the U S uh, chooses to try to utilize, but minimally you can see and imagine it being uh, put to use in, in other, in other countries uh, for sure. So Anyway, just thought that was interesting new technology, Iron Beam. So if you hear about that on the news, you uh, you know what you're talking about. So I um, also thought, uh, you know, we, we were talking recently just about, you know, the uh, inflation happening in the country, uh, the, you know, the, the kind of devaluation of the dollar, 
the increase in cost of different things. You know, we talked last week, I mean, orange juice is up over 300%. Uh, so there's, there's just so many different weird things that are impacting, you know, normal people on a day-to-day basis. And, uh, and so, you know, it kind of made me think, you know, in other periods of time when, uh, there were, you know, financial hardships for the country, did it affect how, uh, how, how we shopped for groceries, how we ate, because, you know, right now, as I mentioned, you know, last week we're talking about orange juice up 300%. Olive oil is up, I think 130%. Uh, beef is up 125%. So, I mean, these numbers that have just been skyrocketing. So I did a little bit of research here and I found a, a really, uh, what I think a very interesting article, which is 10 strange foods of the great depression. And so, you know, again, during the Great Depression, things were a little different, man. It wasn't as simple as you weren't eating for pleasure necessarily. You were eating for sustenance. You had to be able to, you know, just kind of keep you and your family going. And so they had to get creative and they came up with some some fascinating things. And most of these things you're not going to be hearing as uh, as being eaten too often nowadays. Some of them are still somewhat in the lexicon, but most of these things, you know, you, you may never have heard of before. But, uh, but they're pretty fascinating. So I thought I'd run through them, run through them briefly here. So first and foremost, prune pudding. So for those of you who heard that in your mouth, just started watering, boy, the great depression was the the perfect time for you. Prune pudding. First lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, an early proponent of the home economics movement, whipped up nutritious and inexpensive meals that she discovered at Cornell university's home economics department. During the Depression, she made her husband, President Franklin Roosevelt, eat prune pudding, especially when guests were around. Prunes were cheap, easily available, easily stored, and therefore a mainstay during the Great Depression. So prune pudding became a quick and easy substitute for fresh fruits, pies, and other desserts. And so really all you needed to do to be able to make prune pudding was prunes, sugar, and egg whites, and you whip them together and that's prune pudding. So uh, again, doesn't really sound delicious, but bear in mind it was during the great depression and, uh, our appetites have, uh, probably changed a bit since then anyway. Uh, number two, creamed chipped beef, creamed chipped beef, uh, also humorously called SOS. Uh, one of those meetings is, uh, save our stomachs. Another one is uh, blank on a shingle, S on a shingle. I won't use the language. Uh, YouTube might ban me. But um, creamed chip beef was a staple during both World Wars and the Great Depression. This strange dish has its roots in Pennsylvania Dutch country. It was whipped up with salted and dried beef, flour, butter, and milk before being served on a piece of toast. People also added parsley and pepper to the mix if they had some on hand while substituting beef for cheaper meats like goats or wild game. The dish is still served today at certain restaurants and diners in the Mid-Atlantic. And, uh, you know, look, I can vouch for this because, um, you know, I am from Maryland originally and it's not that unusual. You know, this is something that you you hear of, cream chip beef. It's not anything that uh, that I have really eaten, but I do recall that uh, that my it's something my father would eat, and uh, and so it's not uncommon out there. And particularly, you go up in Pennsylvania for sure, uh, cream chip beef. In fact, my uh, you know my uh, my in laws uh, live up in Pennsylvania, and I guarantee you, 
uh, that this is something that they that they would eat. I don't think they eat it normally or regularly, but I guarantee you they 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 would and, and have uh, eaten it at some point. So it is still out there, but uh, started again during the Great Depression. Then we have corned beef luncheon salad. Corned beef luncheon salad. Uh, corned beef luncheon salad was another common beef dish during the Great Depression. It was made with canned corned beef, canned corn, canned peas, gelatin, lemon juice, and vinegar, which were set in a bowl or jello mold in the refrigerator. It sometimes also featured mayonnaise, eggs, horseradish, and other vegetables. Now, <clears throat> I hear that and I want to jump out a window. This is, uh, this is something that I would have a, any one of these things, this is like a, it sounds like a Mad Libs, uh, type of, uh, type of recipe where you just wrote in random words and decided to stick them together because canned corned beef. Okay. I guess you could eat that canned corn. Okay. Canned peas. Okay. Gelatin. Suddenly the brakes kind of screech here, lemon juice and vinegar. Uh, and then putting that into a jello mold sounds pretty bizarre, but then you say, oh, well, well, don't forget. We can also feature mayonnaise, eggs, horseradish, and vegetables. Uh, look, I get the great depression was bad and I'm not trying to minimize it at all, but this, this one, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure that I could have uh, survived the great depression with, uh, with corned beef luncheon salad. Uh, I don't know how, how that constitutes a salad either. Uh, then we move on to Hoover stew. Hoover stew is a depression era cuisine named after United States president, Herbert Hoover, whom many Americans actually blamed for the great depression. It was very popular in soup kitchens. Back then this cheap stew was a thin broth consisting of sliced hot dog rounds, cooked macaroni, canned tomatoes and canned corn, beans, or peas. So essentially what you're doing is you're slicing up hot dogs. You're, you're throwing in some macaroni already. Okay. This isn't bad, right? Hot dogs and macaroni. That's not a, that's not a terrible thing. Canned tomatoes I could do without, but okay, fine. Canned corn, beans, peas. It just kind of turns into a big, uh, I mean, whatever they call it a stew. It's clearly a stew. That one I think I could handle a whole lot better than the corned beef luncheon salad. Uh, then we move on to dandelion salad. The Great Depression saw people frequently scavenging in their backyards for wild, fresh, edible greens that they could use in cooking. Dandelions were typical produce, so Italian immigrant women in New York City would add this nutritious ingredient to salads, creating a free meal. They would forage and mix these bitter greens with sweet or tangy ingredients to balance the flavor. They usually added whatever they had on hand. So olive oil, hard-boiled eggs, cooked white beans, bacon bits, bacon grease, lemon juice, vinegar, salt, pepper, any one of these things could, uh, or all of them, I guess, really could be mixed in and, and, and uh, thrown in with dandelion salads. So, uh, you know, think about this, you know, the situation that, that the world's in now, right? Things are tough and, and, you know, a lot of people are struggling out there. Uh, we, we, we talked about on last week's episode that there are uh, nearly half a million people in the U.S. right now that have two full-time jobs to be able to stay ahead and pay the bills. And over one and a half million new part-time jobs have been added. And many of those are being worked by people that also have full-time jobs. 
But really picture this during the Great Depression, people were out in their backyards trying to find dandelions growing so that they could uh, use them to be able to eat. So, you know, it does give you a little bit of something to be grateful for. Uh, and then we can move into something else to be grateful for, which is Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. In 1937, when the United States was in the throes of the Great Depression, Kraft Foods launched the iconic Macaroni and Cheese. The company sold 8 million boxes of the boxed product within a year of its debut. This easy-to-make packaged dish came with a bag of dried pasta and a packet of powdered cheese. Back then, a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese cost 19 cents and served four people. So it was an inexpensive way, and obviously a quick way, to feed the family. This Depression-era meal is popular even today, not only in households in the U.S., but worldwide. So think about that. In the middle of the Great Depression, Kraft comes out with Kraft macaroni and cheese, 1937. They sold eight million boxes the first year it was out, 19 cents for a box of macaroni and cheese. I don't know what it costs nowadays. I know it's not 19 cents. And then we get to one of the most fascinating, um, in my mind, horrible, horrible things. In fact, when I read this, I thought this is one of the real tragedies of the Great Depression, that anyone ever ate this. Peanut butter stuffed onions. I'm going to say that again. Uh, peanut butter stuffed onions. During the Depression, onions were a common and easily grown and stored vegetable. So they were readily available and most importantly, free. Meanwhile, peanut butter was also inexpensive. So the Bureau of Home Economics devised the recipe for peanut butter stuffed onions as an easy way for American homemakers to feed their families. The recipe for this curious dish was published in many 1930s newspapers and magazines. It eventually found its way onto American dining tables as a healthy, tasty, simple, and low-cost meal that could be served any time of day. Now, who's having that for breakfast? I don't know. The mishmash consisted of baked onions with peanut butter filling mixed with stale breadcrumbs. These ingredients came together and created a distasteful and disliked dish <laughs> that people only ate to fill their hungry stomachs. So yeah, if, you know, if you look in your pantry or your refrigerator and you just can't figure out what you want to have for dinner, nothing's jumping out at you, nothing's appealing, look at all of that stuff and then compare it to peanut butter stuffed onions and suddenly you may have a new appreciation for the things that you have on hand there in the pantry because that's one that's pretty difficult to uh, to imagine. And needless to say, people hated it. Uh, they were willing to eat it just to, uh, you know, avoid starvation. But uh, that that's about what it would take for me. And I'd have to be pretty far down the road of starvation before uh, I would consider this. Then we have something called loaves. Loaves were another mainstay during the Depression. They were usually made from cheap ingredients, but would feature a star ingredient that served as the highlight of the meal. Some popular types of Depression-era loaves were liver loaf, lima bean loaf, and peanut loaf. If people wanted to splurge, they would make an authentic meat loaf and pad it with inexpensive ingredients like crackers or bread. Then, by adding canned soup and ketchup, 
homemakers could give the dish some extra flavor without it costing too much. So again, when I say loaves, people are thinking, well, is that a loaf of bread? Well, we all know meatloaf, right? That's, that's obviously something that's very much still in the, uh, in the lexicon, in the pantheon of people, you know, eating today on the menus of even restaurants will have meatloaf. But that is just one type of loaf. There was liver loaf, lima bean loaf, peanut loaf, so many different types. Uh, and people had to be creative and figure out what they could throw in there to, to make it turn into something. And then we have vinegar pie. Now, look, I like pie. I'm a pie fan. Uh, people who know me know I, I like pie even better than I like cake. I am a big uh, pie guy. However, of all the pies that I like, and I like almost all of them. I like uh, your pumpkin pie because, you know, it's fall right now. I like, uh, I like a good pumpkin pie. Apple pie, of course. Blueberry pie. Cherry pie. So many, there's so many good pies out there. But vinegar pie is not one that has ever uh, garnered any interest from me. And I don't believe that I will change my mind on that anytime soon. But I will give you the breakdown on what vinegar pie is. And again, please try to uh, deactivate your salivary glands when I, when I tell you about this. Pie recipes from the 1930s usually tried to recreate fruit pies like apple pies without fruits, which were hard to come by. Instead, they substituted vinegar for the tartness of fruits and lemons. One popular vinegar-based treat was vinegar pie, also called vinegar cobbler or desperation pie. Well, okay, the last, the last title there I get. People created this low-cost dessert with a pie crust filled with apple cider vinegar, flour, unsalted butter, salt, brown sugar, Eggs, ground cinnamon, ground nutmeg, cloves, and water. It looked and tasted like custard with a sweet and tangy flavor while leaving a tingling sensation on the roofs of people's mouths. So vinegar pie. I guess when they had no fruit, tried to get that tanginess of the uh, of the vinegar there and uh, get some tartness happening. So, yeah, if you ever want to look uh, look up a, a recipe to try out on a on a rainy weekend, try yourself some vinegar pie. And we also have mock apple pie. Another standard dessert during the Great Depression was the mock apple pie. This pie recipe also tried to mimic the flavor of apples using cheaper ingredients in its fillings. A mock apple pie was technically a pastry imposter as it had no apples. Instead, it used crumbled Ritz crackers, lemon juice, cinnamon, butter, and sugar syrup as humble substitutes for apple pie filling. These ingredients were stuffed in a pie crust and then baked. The crackers' unique texture, rich buttery flavor, and other ingredients created a taste that reminded people of apple pies. This actually made it a Depression-era favorite. Though the Depression was a challenging time for our country, it's pretty amazing to see how people adapted and got creative for survival. And yeah, mock apple pie, I mean, look, this is, this is one where you say, okay, we're trying to create something here. This isn't just to keep people fed. I mean, this is this is dessert, right? So it's also a little bit of a luxury. Uh, same thing, I guess, with vinegar pie, though it doesn't seem very luxurious. But, you know, you look at some of these and, and, and you really had all kinds of different scenarios on how you were going to keep people fed. But across the board, it required resourcefulness and in some cases creativity to be able to go out there and say, look, I don't have a lot. I've got to figure out what I can do with what I have. 
and, you know, make the best of a bad situation here. And people were able to do it. And so, look, you know, I, I, I take that as a lesson for all of us. Things uh, are bad in life. Things are bad right now, maybe in the in the country or in different parts of the world, all over the world in, in a lot of instances. But, you know, we can be resourceful and we can make the best of a bad situation. And I guess when life gives you vinegar, make vinegar pie. So that's, uh, those are 10 strange foods of the Great Depression. And as we do talk about things being a little dicey in the world right now, I saw this the other day and, you know, I, I know all the demographics of our listeners and, you know, we, we have a pretty wide range uh, of age groups uh, and, and it's a global audience. So people all over the, the world, uh, we're fortunate enough to have them listen to the show and we appreciate it. This one's going to be more specific to folks here in the U.S., but Social Security's combined funds are due to run out in 2034, according to CNBC. So we've been hearing for years that, you know, well, if we don't change things, Social Security is going to run out of money. The government's not going to be able to fund Social Security. What's going to happen? You know, et cetera. Well, now there's a pretty hard date on it that they expect that Social Security will run out of funds in 2034. So really not very far. It's about a decade from now. So you have a lot of folks that are maybe in their 40s and 50s and 60s that are, you know, kind of looking ahead over this next decade going, what in the world's going to happen? Now, in all fairness, I'm not 100% sure if that is unable to pay people that are already in it or just unable to, you know, continue uh, taking new people on. But I do think, you know, clearly that's problematic. Um, the Medicare hospital trust fund reserves are now predicted to run out in 2031. That's actually a little bit further out. It was originally supposed to run out in 2028. And so that now has extended to 2031. Um, but no matter what, if you look at this, the Medicare hospital trust fund running out in 2031, social security combined funds running out in 2034, um, you know, the, the, the future is going to, going to be interesting. I still think that, you know, these things can get turned around. Uh, you know, we know that it's getting taken out of paychecks. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no doubt that Americans are continuing to fund these things. I think the bigger question is what happens, you know, as things continue to progress forward, what's the game plan? What's the solution on these things? And, you know, as we look ahead to, you know, upcoming elections in the U.S., uh, particularly presidential elections, but not only presidential, really across the board, all elections, these are the things that we do need to really pay attention to. This stuff's boring. This is, this is why people get away with not talking about it because it's boring. It's dull and people don't understand it. People don't really get, okay, well, what, is, what are they saying? What is the social security combined fund? What's the Medicare hospital trust fund? People don't know. So they're content to just ignore it. But, you know, just understand when we ignore some of these things, uh, unfortunately, we are kind of doing it at our, at our own peril as we get closer and closer because sooner or later, we're going to need to be able to come up with some answers on some of this stuff. And, um, Gonna gonna impact a lot of people for sure. And moving on, you know, uh, a little story that uh, haven't seen a whole lot about recently, but boy, it was big for a little while. Was uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, still very mysterious situation with Jeffrey Epstein? Uh, Jeffrey Epstein, of course, the millionaire, multimillionaire, maybe billionaire. Uh, you know, spent his time in both New York and Florida 
had an island, a private island, and was apparently into sex trafficking and underage uh, girls and had a lot of powerful connections seemingly that protected him. And, and, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, who, you know, went to court over everything that, that happened and, you know, has been sentenced. And, you know, there was a really interesting thing here that just happened about two days ago. There was a mysterious death of an Ep Epstein victim and key witness. So, uh, this, this lady, Carolyn Andriano, had been a crucial witness in the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, the accomplice of notorious sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. Andriano's sudden death was ruled as an accidental overdose, and it has raised eyebrows and stirred suspicions due to its timing and the circumstances surrounding it. So let's dive into this a little bit. Andriano was a former victim of Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking ring and was planning to start a new life in North Carolina with her husband and children. However, she was found unresponsive in a hotel room in West Palm Beach, Florida. The official cause of death was declared an accidental overdose, but both the nature and timing of her passing have ignited a firestorm of speculation and left many questioning the veracity of the official explanation. So Andriano had been through a, a lot in her life, uh, besides being a survivor of Epstein's sex trafficking network, uh, she had seen the darkest side of humanity. I mean, she'd been through a, all kinds of different things, but she, she had the courage to step up and speak out, uh, and actually became a key witness in the trial against Ghislaine Maxwell. Her testimony was instrumental in shining a light on the crimes that Epstein and his accomplices committed. Her sudden demise not only shocked her family and friends, but also, also those who followed the trial closely. And so her mother, Andriano's mother, has been vocal in seeking further investigation into her daughter's death. And uh, look, this is, this is, I mean, again, you know, you, you start to testify in these high-powered cases. Maybe you know a certain information or possibly people that were involved because you were part of it. You know, you personally were, uh, were trafficked and these types of things. There's, uh, there's a lot more questions than answers about this. Uh, and so, you know, look, I'm not going to pretend that I know all the details of, uh, of Carolyn Andriano, but I know anytime you're in a situation like what she's been in, uh, where, you know, you were obviously a victim of one of the highest profile sex trafficking, uh, cases, the world has ever known and connected to incredibly powerful people that we still don't have even a, a hint of, of uh, the full depth of the people that were involved in that. Uh, but we know very, very powerful people. And, you know, let's face it, while we don't know the whole list, we know that Jeffrey Epstein had his island and we know just from flight manifests, the types of people that were at that island on multiple occasions. And I'm talking Bill Gates, Bill Clinton, you know, really, really powerful, powerful people in the world who were there. And I, I threw those two names out there. Those, those are two that we know. I don't have the whole list in front of me, but those two minimally were there multiple times. And of course they all say, oh, we were just there on business. We were there for meetings. We were there, blah, blah, blah. It was a vacation. It was offered to us. Uh, but yet that's also where lots of sex trafficking was going on. And these women were being held, but supposedly no one know, knows about that. No one, <laughs> total news to everybody, right? No, no one knows. Uh, even though there were 
pictures taken with Prince Edward there with his arm around a young girl, uh, you know, who is, who has come out and testified about things. So the point is, you know, when you have that level of person in the world, and then you have someone who was part of that, who has been willing to, uh, to step up and speak out, uh, against those things, boy, it's, it's, uh, it's not hard to imagine that maybe something, uh, something nefarious comes from this, that maybe that accidental overdose might not be that accidental, uh, to a married woman with children who was moving to North Carolina to, uh, start a, a new lease on life. So, uh, again, don't know, don't know all the ins and outs of Carolyn, uh, Andrianos, but, uh, I definitely think it's worth a look. And I certainly hope that, uh, that, you know, there's some sort of clarity that's able to be, to be found in that situation. So, uh, again, you always got to go a little bit deeper. You know, we talk about it all the time on the show, the importance of, of trying to understand what's below the headlines. And we see this all the time, all the time, anything that happens in the news don't just take it at face value. You have to look at it and say, okay, but who profits or who wins by this story being told? Who wins by this story being told the way that it's being told? You know, a prime example, uh, there was a new story that came out uh, earlier that was talking about a, uh, a hospital being bombed in the fight between Israel and Palestine and over a hundred people dying. And Palestine comes out and says that Israel did it. And Israel comes out and says, Palestine did it. Well, there is a truth, right? There is fact of what happened. You know, a lot of people out today, you know, have this idea that, you know, it's, it's about, it's about your truth, that there isn't fundamental truth. It's just your truth based on your experiences. No, that may be the case sometimes, but there's also truth, truth. There's the real truth. There's the facts and the reality is, it may be Palestine's truth that Israel bombed this hospital, and it may be Israel's truth that Palestine did it, but there is in there somewhere real facts, real facts that eventually can be, you know, hopefully uncovered. And it's no different with Jeffrey Epstein. It's no different with so many stories that we see in the news. You see that story in the news and maybe you see the initial headline and that headline is, you know, uh, whether it's Israel or Palestine, whichever one you saw speaking out about the other one. Okay. Does that mean it's true because you saw it on the news? Probably not. Probably not. Probably means that somebody rushed to get the news out first so that they could tell their side of the story and, and kind of tilt popular opinion in their, in their direction. And we just have to know that that's the case, right? So when you look at these things and these stories across the board, and we're going to start seeing a lot more of them as we get closer to presidential elections here in the U.S., there's going to be more and more craziness coming out. And so, you know, I encourage everyone, and I, certainly I'm not always perfect at this either. I know Jeff's not always perfect at this either. You know, there's no way to be. But at least try. At least try to take a step back and don't look at it from the perspective of, uh, you know, I'm a conservative and I hate this because it's liberal or vice versa, or I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, these types of things, but really just look at it for what it is. And if you can just look at it from a factual basis and apply common sense to it, that'll go a long way. 
because that's really most of the time what people are not thinking you're going to do. <laughs> They're thinking that you will just kind of see whatever pops up on the TV or whatever pops up on your phone or, or whatever the case may be, glance at the headline, and then that's what becomes absorbed into your head. And then if it ever comes up again later on, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, uh, you know, I heard this person did that or whatever, because you just absorb the headline. The things that you care about, though, are probably worth digging a little bit deeper on. And, uh, you know, we see that all the time. So, the, you know, the continued weaponization of media is, is something that isn't going to stop. It's not going to slow down. In fact, if anything, it's going to accelerate. And we just all have to be aware of that, you know. So remember, your ads that you're seeing are targeted to you based on your searches. So the things you're looking at. So while it seems like the whole world feels the same way you feel about a certain topic, it's because you're being fed those same stories, those same people, those same opinions, because that's all based on your search history and the things that you show interest in because they're targeting you for all of these things. So it's good to get out from that and just try to look at things from an unbiased perspective. And that is one of the things we try uh, to the very best of our ability to accomplish on this show is to not bring any bias to it. Just try to look at it and say, boy, does that make sense? that make any sense at all. And if it does make sense, who does it make sense for and why, you know? And I think sometimes it's just important to ask the questions. If you ask the questions alone, uh, that that'll go a long way. So anyway, I think the, you know, I don't want to, don't want to harp too long on that, but certainly with, with Jeffrey Epstein, <laughs> you better believe there's an awful lot of powerful people that do not want information to get out about this. Uh, and so, and it hasn't, you know, quite frankly, a, a massive amount of that information has never come out. And, uh, I don't think we have any reason to believe that it will anytime soon, at least as long as those people in charge are, uh, you know, actively working to prevent it from coming out. So people are being protected from a uh, very high level. Okay. So before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to end with a, a nice story, something a little uplifting. I traditionally try to do that last couple of weeks. I've gotten away from it a little bit because of everything going on in the world. We still try to end a little bit of a high note, but I like to try to find a little bit of a story, a little bit of trivia, an interesting fact, uh, you know, something that I can uh, kind of end the show on and, and hopefully have people coming away, you know, on a little bit of a high feeling good. And I saw the story and I actually talked about it uh, this week on our sports show as well. Uh, and I just felt like, you know what, it, it's worth bringing up tonight as well, just because I think it's, it's just a really cool thing. And so this is somewhat sports related. AT&T worked with Gallaudet University to create a 5G helmet so their deaf and hard of hearing students can play football. Coaches will select plays from a tablet which will then show up on the player's visor. And so, you know, this is really neat because, and I actually will, uh, I can pull this up for those who are watching video and give you a feel for what this looks like. But essentially for those who are listening to the podcast, uh, it is really a, uh, you know, a helmet with like a little lens that, that uh, comes down kind of over the eye. So, uh, you know, I, I talked about it on, on the sports show about like, you know, in cars, sometimes they have what's called a heads up display where they kind of project the speed onto the windshield. Uh, it, it's kind of a similar type of thing. They have this lens that comes down over the visor so that it's right in front of the player's eyes. And, you know, they're able to see the, uh, you know, the plays 
popping right up on there. So I just, you know, when I saw this, I, I just thought it was a really neat thing because, you know, Gallaudet University, I, I don't know how many people are really even familiar with, with Gallaudet, but they're located in Washington, D.C. They're a private federally chartered university. So it's a real university, but it's specifically a university for the education of the deaf and hard of hearing. It was founded in 1864. And so, you know, they've, they've been at it for a long time and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating the programs that they have there, but they also have a football team. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was so interesting and talked a little bit about this on, on, on our sports show is, you know, we think all the time about, you know, not only the NFL for football, but even college football is such a huge business. You have players who, you know, maybe they're in high school. Maybe they're looking at colleges, but they're, they're deaf or hard of hearing and they're naturally limited. And that honestly, you know, can turn people away from even attempting to play football. And so, you know, to see this type of technology being used to help people that are, you know, that are kind of less fortunate as it pertains to, you know, the use of all of their, all of their senses, uh, I just thought was a really neat thing because, you know, you have these, these students who have every right to be able to play football and, and to be on a college football team. I mean, what a formative experience that is. And to, you know, to be able to go out there and, 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 and have technology being used to aid those folks in being able to, to play a sport that they love, uh, it, you know, it's, it's just a really, really neat thing. And so, you know, hopefully we see this type of, of use of technology, whether it's this specific technology or something else, but this use of technology, you know, to, to, to be able to find ways to, to help students be able to play and not just students, right. But kids of any age, right. I mean, now maybe that kid can play peewee football, can play, you know, uh, parks and rec football or something like that. If they're outfitted with these types of helmets and systems. So there's so much that can be done. You know, we talk all the time about technology as it pertains to building businesses and making life easier and turning a profit and, you know, all of these types of things. But how about just improving the lives for, for young people who, you know, would otherwise miss out on the opportunity to be part of a team, you know? And so you never know later down the road, we may start to see uh, deaf players even make it in, in professional sports, you know, a, a meaning really professional sports as it pertains to uh, the NFL in this instance. But that would just be such a cool thing because I guarantee you over time, there have been players that were talented enough to be able to make it, but just the system wasn't there for them to be able to take advantage of it, you know, and, and utilize their skills. Because think about it, man, if you're deaf, it's going to be pretty hard to be able to play football, right? It's easy to say, well, you can, you can run with a football if you're deaf, yeah, but can you hear if the quarterback changes the play call? Can you hear what the quarterback is saying? The play call is when you're in the huddle, he has a helmet on with a face mask. You may never be able to read his lips. You know, if you are the quarterback, can you hear the, what, what play the coach is calling into you? You know, there's all kinds of different scenarios. And so, you know, I, I just, I see something like this as, you know, just makes you feel good that, you know, that these types of things are out there. And, you know, so kudos to AT&T, kudos to Gallaudet University, uh, you know, to be able to have something like this. And, uh, you know, hopefully we continue to see it develop and uh, and move on. So, you know, I think uh, these types of things will will make life better and uh, and easier for for folks of all ages. And, 
you know, it's going to be very expensive at first. Obviously, I don't know the pricing, uh, you know, what uh, what all of this costs and, you know, if the cost was uh, taken up by AT&T or, or Gallaudet or uh, kind of a combination. But, you know, Gallaudet is a is a division three uh, NCAA team. And so, you know, needless to say, they're, as you would imagine, a, a, a kind of a, a lower end, um, you know, football team and everything. But I do think, you know, they, they've had some success. I mean, they had a, a back in 2013, they had a remarkable run. Uh, they made the Division Three playoffs uh, and garnered a considerable amount of publicity. They, they went nine and one. Uh, and so keep in mind, they're not playing against other schools that with deaf students and things like that, you know, so, uh, it's, you know, it's pretty impressive what they've been able to do in a lot of instances. And so, you know, again, anyway, just, I, I just think it's, it's a cool thing. I thought it was a cool story and, uh, you know, really, really great use of technology there to, uh, to improve not only the lives, but the quality of life, uh, for, you know, for students who, you know, life's tough enough, man, life's tough enough. If you have full use of all of your, you know, your, your, your faculties and all of your senses, Life's just difficult no matter what. But if you're trying to navigate through the world without the, you know, the use of your your hearing or, or in many cases your sight or any number of other things, it's just that much harder. And so, you know, again, anything that you can do to kind of ease someone's burden, particularly as it pertains to just using technology, I think is a cool thing to do. And, you know, hopefully something that we could all take a little lesson from on how to help, how to help each other out. So anyway, with that high note, we're going to go ahead and wrap this episode up. As I promised, it's a little bit shorter. And as I promised, a little bit lighter topic wise uh, than, you know, what we've had the past few weeks. And uh, we will make an effort to continue to uh, to be better. So as always, want to thank our global audience for listening to the show. We really, really appreciate you. Share it with your friends and family. Uh, if you're on Facebook, share our clips on there, man. Share, you know, share our stuff. Get it out there. You know, we, we welcome people into the fold. Uh, we have new people joining all the time and we, you know, we're always very appreciative of it. So with that having been said, have a good day, have a good night. And uh, we will talk soon, everybody. Thank you very much.